all good things that happen in music are like uh, unexpected. Like nobody was asking for someone to come along with this thick guitar sound. <laughs> Wall of sound part two. Wall of sound and with these this bluesy riff and then sing it's so shine. <laughs> I mean, nobody thought that up until it happened. Right. You know, and goes, oh, I guess now, yeah, we do need that. Echospire Song Destruct podcast, where we reverse engineer the most influential songs in history. This is a tightly formatted show where we dive into the mechanics of songwriting and production, deconstructing chord structure, song architecture, production design, and arrangements. We rate and review the effectiveness of these song elements and evaluate what we can learn from them so that we can become better songwriters and designers. Today's show is Bang a Gong, or Get It On, as some people call it by uh, T-Rex versus Cigarettes and Alcohol by Oasis. And the theme of today's show is actually going to be discussing the evolution of the refrain into becoming the chorus. So it's going to be interesting. I got a lot to say. I got a lot of songs and examples to cite as I show you how a refrain evolved into a chorus. And these two songs will help to illustrate it as well, because even though in the midst of researching these songs, I figured that Oasis, their song, Cigarettes and Alcohol, might be the major contender for being chorus heavy, as I think of uh, Oasis being anthem rock, which you would it would suggest that that's going to be a big chorus type of song architecture. Cigarettes and Alcohol is actually the song with a refrain and not a big chorus versus T-Rex, Get It On is actually a chorus song, despite it's a very small chorus. It's a bona fide chorus and not a refrain. And we'll get into the details of what separates the two, as well as the history of how they evolved. Welcome to the show, Ryan. Hey, Wes. Good to be back. Well, glad to have you back. Did that not sound convincing? (laughs) No, it it sounded like we caught you on the toilet. Where are you? No, I'm on the couch. Good. Right where we want you, Andy. I'm Conan. You're Andy. Yes. And I'm alive. And thank you for checking on me with the um, tornado. Oh, wait, you didn't. But okay. I'm alive. That's right. It was news to me. So Ryan was 10 minutes late to this podcast call. And I asked him, what made you 10 minutes late? And before I could fire him, he said, Wes, I have a good reason why. A tornado came through Nashville last night. I almost died, and 40 buildings have been destroyed in the greater downtown area of Nashville, to which I said, what tornado? That's right. <laughs> I don't know why that made me late the next day, but we'll go with it. Let me just give a quick background on these songs. There's going to be a lot to talk about in, in regards to the theme. I probably won't focus on the songs too much. However, with that said, we're going to be talking about Oasis, which heavily influenced our songwriting, and we're going to talk a lot about the different mechanics that Noel Gallagher, I'll, I'll go ahead and say it. One of the greater songwriters who ever lived. He's top 10. Noel Gallagher? Noel Gallagher. I like hearing that from your mouth. You know, I wouldn't have said it a month ago, what? What? but as I revisited, yeah, I would have, I would have said top 30, okay. but top 10. And I'm, I'm willing to give him top 10 now. He's probably sneaking in right at the 10th spot, by the way. Okay, let's talk about T-Rex first. So the, uh, the band T-Rex came out 67. 
They went to 77 when uh, the lead singer, Mark Boland, who did their writing, died in a car accident. They were most popular from 70 to 73. They were very popular in UK, not so much here in the US. This was their only hit that actually charted. It charted at number 10. And it had a reprise. It charted again at number nine in 1985 when Power Station covered it, which is a super group uh, formed by Duran Duran and Robert Palmer, who were you know, both very popular in 1985. And they had a hit with this song. Coincidentally, T-Rex also just got into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I, I believe, uh, last month. Oh. Just to do some quick contrasting with Oasis's um, cigarettes and alcohol, besides the obvious reason why I'm contrasting these two, which they had the exact same riff that they're based on, which is a kind of a simple blues riff with a little, it's, it's based in E and then it's got that little three, two, one or G F sharp E riff. So that's what makes them the similar. Otherwise it's just a basic blues riff, but I, I do believe T-Rex was the first to have that hammer on to the G F sharp E and of course, Oasis totally samples it and was not sued. And we'll get to that because I have a plagiarism part to this show where they've been sued for everything, but they were not sued for the most obvious thing that they ever ripped off, which was that riff. So Get It On has 40 million views on YouTube. And currently, Cigarettes and Alcohol only has 6 million YouTube views, which is surprising because I actually think of Cigarettes and Alcohol as being a fairly widely circulated popular song. You know what it is? America didn't take to Oasis on the first album. It's true. Yeah, I got some numbers to put behind that. In fact, it really just took Wonderwall. And if anything, most people, if you ask like cigarettes and alcohol, even some American people that are vaguely aware of their catalog, they probably don't know cigarettes and alcohol. But they definitely know Wonderwall, which has 350 million views. I'll hear Wonderwall being played on Broadway, you know? And the elevator everywhere. It, it's the only song Oasis ever had that charted at all. Actually, I take that back. Wonderwall charted at number eight, and Don't Look Back in Anger charted at number 55. Talk Tonight didn't? No. <laughs> <laughs> now, having said that, they were a giant success in the UK, where if you were to read their Wikipedia page, they go on and on about how they've sold uh, 75 million albums worldwide. But of course, in America... All they sold was four million Morning Glory, one million on the initial album, definitely maybe, and one million on the uh, Be Here Now, which was basically them on their way out already. They've set lots of records in the UK, including they've sold something like two hundred fifty thousand tickets over the course of two nights for an outdoor concert at the peak of their fame in August nineteen ninety six. But more importantly, they had two and a half million people apply for tickets. Only two hundred fifty were sold. Oasis was also competing with Blur during this time. Blur actually outsold them, 274 to 216,000. But in any case, uh, the Liam and Noel Gallagher feud with Blur totally spiraled out of control there. Uh, Noel was actually quoted as saying, I hope Blur gets AIDS and dies. <laughs> Think about a band saying that. I remember that. <laughs> hey, he knew uh, he was the original. Uh, well, not the original, but he knew how to get press. <laughs> they were all loudmouths and they hated each other. It was not an act. These guys did not like each other. And To look at them in their videos, I went back and revisited all their videos. These guys just stand there. The cameras move and they, you know, shake lights and smoke and mirrors to make it look like Oasis is a lot more uh, uh, interesting than they are. But they are like wood statues. Proudly anti-movement. That was their thing. In fact, Strokes, who was downstream from Oasis, was big on non-movement as well. And of course, our band was big on on (laughs) non-movement. 
You know, we could have moved a little more, you know, we could have made an effort. Uh, you know, I listen to Howard Stern every day. I even heard him talk once about, he goes, you know, those guys from Oasis that, that never moved on yeah. stage. And the fact that he even knew that, because he's, even though he's a, he's a big music fan, he doesn't, that's not something, it's way too specific a thing to right. know. But it is sort of a thing about Oasis that, you know, even somebody like him would say that. You know, if you're playing guitar, you sort of want to, <laughs> you know, move your shoulders or something. But Noel just stands there like he's got a, um, uh, like he's frozen. And if you look through all the smoke and mirrors that the video editing provides, they really do look like young, intimidated kids, despite all of their bravado. Yeah. They really just weren't, they just did not have it together right. yet. Going back and reading some articles on them during that first album, they got a lot of favorable press who was basically quick to jump on Liam saying the guy oozed rock and roll. I think philosophically, I mean, I think even if Noel in some interviews would say, you know, we want it to be all about the songs. Yeah. And if people are jumping up and down in the crowd and there's tons of movement out right. there, it's going to be because of the songs. It's not going to be because, you know, we're doing something on stage to promote that other than playing great songs. But I think that in his mind, because he just is like, in Noel's mind anyway, as the songwriter, he's going, these songs are so good. I, I'm going to take pride in just standing like this. That's enough. <laughs> that's enough. The, that should be enough it, for you. <laughs> I don't need to dance and, around like a clown. Right. It, it That would be okay if the rest of the band had done something. And again, Liam, he's going the extra mile because he has to sing anyways, and he has to stare down the camera. So he he's doing that. But Bonehead standing there doing nothing. Just too many gigs. <laughs> Gwigsy. <Quigsy. laughs> Gwigsy like strumming single root notes on his bass. <laughs> you know, I read that Noel Gallagher, when he formed the band, you know, he jumped into Liam's band. But when he when he did jump into it and made it his own, he apparently uh, said that the bassist had to only pluck root notes. He wanted that? <laughs> he wanted that. That was part of the Oasis magic. <laughs> yeah. Because ultimately, they did not have any swing to their music. If you think about Beatles or anything coming out of the 60s, there's a lot of swing okay. in it. Yeah. And there is zero swing in Oasis, which is why we uh, commonly characterize it as box music, not just because he moves around all the typical, you know, one, three, four, five, six chord progression patterns like E, A, F sharp, B, G sharp, C sharp. He loves those boxes, but also it's a one-dimensional sound, the Oasis sound. It's highly compressed, guitar-driven. It, it is. And nothing else. I think they had to rework a lot of Definitely Maybe. I think they almost recorded maybe the whole album or something, mm -hmm. and they just said, this is just, this is crap. This is not how it sounds live. How do we get a bigger sound? And they really had to. We'll actually get into that in the production phase, uh -huh. but I'll go ahead and spoil that. They did not re-record it. What they did was they passed it around a few different producers. Uh -huh. And one of, one of the producers finally figured out, Hey guys, the compression, we just have to crank it up. And they're like, yeah, we love how that sounds. What'd you do? It's like, I just turned on the compression. <laughs> and just created the Oasis guitar sound. Apparently before then, Noel was trying to overcompensate by layering the guitars, which was just making it more and more messy because all the different effects were, um, you know, just not playing well together. The the new producer basically stripped it down to one layer of guitar, threw on a bunch of compression, and accomplished what Noel wanted. But then he got certain 
textures by taking all of the different layered guitars and adding just a little bit here, a little bit there, pulling it out in the chorus, that kind of thing. But ultimately, that's the story of how they came up with their sound. It was just compression. I think I think Noel was at his wits end too. I think he was about to like quit music. <laughs> you think about it, when it's your first time really in a studio and your first yeah. time really doing a lot of things and it and then you you're so excited and then you got all these songs and you think it's great and then you hear it and you're like, Oh man, like I guess right. I'm not I guess we're not that great. Right, right. Because and you could see the tendency because you're still so new to just go. Oh, I guess that's it. It's a good story point because uh, people don't have to wait anymore. If you're if if you're anybody, you can record yourself on your phone and listen to it back. But back in the day, yeah, you kind of had to go out of your way. Uh, even back in the '90s, you had to go out of your way to find a four-track machine and try to put a couple tracks down and see how you sounded with your whole band. Right. You, yes, you could always have some kind of karaoke machine, but today. People get instant feedback on what they sound like, what their voice sounds like, whether it's strong, whether it's thin. But yeah, all all in all, this is sort of the last age of music, as I've mentioned in previous episodes. This was what I call third wave Britpop, first wave being 64 with the Beatles. The second wave of Britpop, I would argue, came somewhere with U2, somewhere 80, 81, 82. Uh and there was mm. a fair amount of other bands that came in during that sweep. And then the third wave began in 1990, 1991. And that was when Blur kind of entered the scene. They they crashed the music scene four years pr- prior to Oasis. So Blur was there amongst uh, The Clash had a reprise. And there was just a lot of soup drag and kind of dance pop was coming out of uh, UK at that time. Oasis was the bookend, the end of the third wave of Brit pop. There's always that band they always reference – Way bigger in England than here. Stone Roses. Yeah, exactly. And I never understood the the draw of that band. Well, he had the moxie. Liam copied the exact image of Ian Brown. Yeah, that 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 makes sense. Um, but their songs, I just never. I want to be adored and all that. It's just kind of a droning mess. Well, they were know? a jam band, and we were never much into jam bands. They had a couple of singles where they kind of contained songs into three. Th- four minute kind of highly structured, but largely they were six, seven, eight minute long jam band songs with a UK kind of British pop bent. I like them, but uh, yeah, they were definitely not comparable to Oasis. They just had the cult of cool working for them. Okay. Let's talk about architecture going to get it on bang a gong, whatever we want to call this song. Uh, The mood, it's kind of a sultry yet optimistic, seductive, meaningless wordplay of a song and it's kind of claimed to be what the song that kicked off glam rock now even though i don't tend to think of oasis as being glam rock they are most definitely influenced by bands like kiss who was also glam rock and i would even say guns and roses was kind of the end of glam rock but if if anything the parent or upstream from glam rock is really just uh really over-the-top power rock. You know, glam rock just kind of became also a makeup movement, you know, just putting a bunch of lipstick on, and that was kind of the glam part. But it was still just over-the-top rock music, which is what Oasis is as well. Now, looking at the architecture of Oasis, it's a very simple verse-verse-chorus. And again, to get into the refrain versus chorus, a refrain is more like the tail of a verse. So when you think of a song like um, Hound Dog, you ain't nothing but a hound dog crying all the time. You ain't never caught a rabbit. You ain't no friend of mine. That's a refrain. 
there is no chorus to Hound Dog. Right. Most of the songs, if not almost all of them in the 50s, were just verse and refrain. And they might have some kind of a bridge, but they did not really have choruses the way we think of choruses. And I'll kind of go on to define the five things that make a chorus a chorus. But cigarettes and alcohol is just a refrain because the tagline of the song, all I found was cigarettes and alcohol. That's just right at the end, the tail end of the second verse. Mm -hmm. The chorus actually functions more, which is you could wait for a lifetime to spend your days in the sunshine. You might as well do the white line because when it comes on top, you got to make it happen. That whole portion, yeah, we can call it a chorus, but I would think of it more as a bridge. And I say that because I reviewed every single song written in the 50s over the past month to kind of sense what a bridge sounds like. And it tends to be kind of a middle 16 bar passage, which is what that chorus is. Most choruses are not 16 bars. They tend to be eight bars, anywhere between four and eight bars. And anything that's 16 bars tends to be more into the uh, the capacity of what's known as a bridge. Quickly comparing to Get It On, Get It On is all based on E, going to A, E, A. And when it wants to kick into the chorus, get it on, bang a gong, get it on. It basically jumps up to G, which is not really in the key. But again, this whole thing's in a blues structure. We've discussed in the past how that's really just a flat third. And so he hits the G, hits the A, and then comes back to the E. So let's compare and contrast these real quick before we kind of go into the rest of it. Um, Bang a gong, get it on. It's going verse, verse, chorus, verse, verse, chorus, verse, verse, chorus. The verses are done in six bars. So as we've discussed, bars tend to be four or eight. They're doing six because it's got this weird phrasing. Well, you're dirty and sweet, clad in black. Don't look back and I love you. You're dirty, sweet. Oh, yeah. So you can tell there that's three lines instead of four. And that's the reason why they only have six bars before repeating another verse. Again, that lends itself to having just a two-bar chorus because when you have six-bar verses – when you throw on that last two, it feels like you completed a standard eight bar. Right. So that's the math going on. Yes. Okay. So having said that, cigarettes and alcohol and any Oasis song, they're all very, very boring in terms of bar phrasing. Everything is eight or 16 bars. <laughs> the only thing that he's really accomplishing with the architecture of this song instinctively i don't think he's calculated on this but the fact that he lays the title or what i'll call the tag that he lays that in the tail end of the second verse before hitting that bridge it works much better uh as a refrain versus a chorus because it harkens back to the 50s when you think of 50s music it's ultimately probably best characterized as being extremely catchy and the reason why it's catchy is because it's very immediate you don't have to wait for the chorus. Mm. The, ke- the catchphrase that the hook is always right there at the end of four bars. And Noel does it in a big 90s, 1994 anthemic song. He makes it a little bit 50s-esque by making it a verse refrain. One of my favorite songs of all time does it. You were always on my mind. Willie Nelson. You were always on my mind. Yeah, that's the version I like the best. Uh <laughs> which I think his was in the 80s, but it's just kind of like a verse. I've always said versorus. <laughs> yeah. I always just say bridge or middle eight after that. So sure. in the case of you, you were always on my mind, it's then, you know, um, that next part is just more, serves more as a middle eight. Right. Okay. So a couple other things just to note that both songs are doing is uh, T-Rex roots its song in 
a blues structure, but it's reinventing it because one, the chord change, blues rarely leaves one, four, five, and he's hitting a flat third with that G. Besides that, they're layering on other things such as his sultry voice, which is one of the most over the top vocals to date in 1971. I mean, you, you got lots of guys who have learned to kind of sing in all kinds of voices, but that one is quite over the top uh, in terms of how he kind of gets down in there and right. he's singing an E3. So E3, E2 would be like down here, you know, real bass. Besides that, they're putting on the ooze, you know, they're, they're doing the layering verse three and verse four where they have ooh. They're adding that British tinge, harkening back to the Beatles or the Beach Boys. On the chorus, they're adding Big Gospel Singer, which is basically sampling from what Rolling Stones did with Gimme Shelter. It's just a shout away. It's just a shout away. So they're doing that. uh, Bang a gong. Get it on. Get it on. And that's a, a quick lesson we can take away. When in doubt, if you want to make the song kind of take off in a chorus or for a middle eight or pre-chorus or whatever you're trying to make take off Add an octave. And if you're Axl Rose also at a bass octave, mm. he was not afraid to have E2, E3, E4 and E5 sung. <laughs> really? He liked to do it because it makes his vocal sound more like a monster, which is what he was into. <laughs> Some of the cool stuff happening on the Oasis, uh, Cigarettes and Alcohol, is that little guitar riff that really sets it apart from T-Rex, which is that... Right. He's basically hitting a ninth note, which I'll always be quick to call out because I think it's hard. I don't see it often. You will see every other note, sixth, seventh, uh, sus four... And, you know, of course, all the major triads, but you rarely see anyone touch on ninth. And I will do a show one day on all the different songs that use it because there's so few of them that you'd be surprised. But every time you hear a ninth, it sounds different. And that guitar solo is echoing ninth notes. Noel's using a very typical uh, transition when he goes to the bridge. He's going up from the root note to the four chord. So he's moving from E to A which is really the only transition that was ever done in the 50s. <clears throat> so if you ever hear a verse and a chorus in the 50s, they're only ever going back and forth between root and four. That can't be true. <laughs> it, it is. And wait till, wait till I show you the proof of it. It's amazing. <laughs> if they're not doing that, they're just staying on the root. So the verse is root and the chorus is root. But if they ever move... It's going up to the four. I think once or twice they go to the sister chord of the root where, you know, if it's E, they go to C sharp minor, or if it's G, they go to E minor. But I think that's only done maybe once or twice in the 50s. And then in the 1961, people start to experiment. But still largely, I I think I only found 10 examples that deviate before 1964. And I'll go through all 10. It's like that movie Pleasantville where everything was in black and white. And then somebody, (laughs) I don't remember what happened, lied or something and saw color. (laughs) Or in this case, somebody finally introduced a key change. But yes, everything up until this point was one, four, five. And at best, you hit a six chord in there. Okay, so the chords on uh, cigarettes and alcohol in the verse E, F, sus4, A, back to E. Now you'll notice right off the bat, Noel always majors the second. So it should have been F sharp minor. He always turns it into a major. And when in doubt, he, he'll try to turn it into a sus4 as well. And 
Liam is singing the sus4 note. So it is a true sus4. Sometimes he just throws a sus4 in there like Wonderwall. The whole thing is sus4. Right. But he's not singing sus4. Um, and I've long hated that chord. Just so everybody <laughs> listening to this podcast understands. I have, since I learned to songwrite, hated sus4. I don't know why. It's in my genes. But I've long thought of it as some kind of a parlor trick. And I've long noticed that people throw a sus4, but they're not singing the sus4. So why are you throwing the sus4 on the guitar if you're not actually singing that note? To this day, it, it irks me. I will say that in terms of the total production value, it's lazy. Not just the production quality, but uh, that song has a long outro. I mean, he's got so much license, Noel, to just go on a total solo fiasco and he, he does nothing. In fact, it, it's so underwhelming. He's just, you know, touching a bunch of different notes that you can tell the producer just mixed it low because he's like, I got nothing to work with here. I, <laughs> I can't accentuate anything. We're just going to mix it lowly in the back. Right. So it's like 32 bars of outro. And he was he was not a bad lead guitarist, but he just didn't bother to actually add or create the solo for the end of the song. Uh, let's talk about the lyrics real quick. So T-Rex, dirty, sweet. Black, love, slim, weak, teeth, hydra, girl, bang, gong, built, car, hubcap, diamond, star, untamed, truth, cloak, eagles, blues, shoes, stockings, windy, wild. Ultimately, it's meaningless wordplay. And again, the, the lesson here is he was going for a vibe. If 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 you're just going for a vibe and you want to and you've got nothing else better to say, string together you know, black leather teeth, and you'll you'll kind of create something that people can kind of hang the hat on and go, okay, that's what the song's about. It's about that, whatever that is. But that's still better than writing a song where you had something to say, and yet you don't use enough keywords. Like when in doubt, just examine the keywords in your song and say to yourself, if I just look at the keywords, is there enough meat on the bones? Now, if I go to cigarettes and alcohol, Imagination, living for action, cigarettes, alcohol, lifetime, sunshine, white line, make it happen, aggravation, job, nothing worth working for, situation, cigarettes, alcohol. There's enough going on there. But I do think that Noel's not the greatest lyricist. I think he wastes a lot of words like shine, <laughs> line, and so on. But I do think he did nail, is it my imagination or have I finally found something worth living for? That's a great opening line to kind of sell you on the or something worth working for, something worth living for, living for. Oh, and then he says, I was looking for some action. Right. And then later in the song, he says, is it a, uh, worth the aggravation to find yourself a job when there's nothing worth working for? That's right. That's the, the bookend and the, uh, the second go around. See, I like that because it's kind of um, a little bit of like a punk ethos, but all, you know, like what's the point of going and working some crappy job. Right. Uh, you know, besides paying the rent and all that, he kind of balances it out with the, you got to make it happen. Right. Uplifting. The crowd wants that too. They want both things. It's a yin and yang song. They want like, yeah, uh, (laughs) yeah, nothing worth working for, nothing worth it. And then got to make it. And then hand me my beer. I love this song. I I do love this song. Let's talk about some of the plagiarism. So it's interesting to to note that 
the song whatever which was a big hit in the uk which is like i'm free to do whatever i whatever I, blah, blah. Yeah. in any case he ripped off a song it goes how sweet to be an idiot really what song is that? It was a hit in the UK. You know, Noel was like, I had never actually heard the song, <laughs> but he's like, I did uh, apparently rip it off. So he kind of admitted it. Shaker Maker Coke. ripped off the Coke yep. commercial. I'd like to teach the world saying. Step Out ripped off Uptight, a much better song by Stevie Wonder. Yeah. Uptight, everything is all right. It sounds just like it. Uh, Hello ripped off a Gary Glitter, which was also a glam rocker. Good to be back. So like in Hello, it goes, uh, it's good to be back. It's good to be back. Noel just sings it in the background. Yeah. It's kind of a throwaway backup line. Yeah. So that guy, that guy loves Noel because he probably made a ton of money off that. Gary Glitter is famous for his rock and roll song, which was used on the Joker Steps. That uh, that drum beat. Yeah. Stadium rock song. Where they used to play it, but apparently Gary Glitter got into a bunch of pedophilia charges, and now it's controversial to play his stuff. I got a, um, uh, I've got an obscure one that I don't think I've ever heard anybody say. Yeah, there's a Oasis song they actually really like called "Part of the Q," and the verse melody to me is almost identical to "Cruel Summer." Um, which I don't even know who sings that, but it's an 80s song that I think was in the Karate Kid. Huh. I think I think Noel got away with one there. Maybe it's just similar, you know. Maybe it's not a lawsuit. Yeah. Type. Well, these days it, everything's a lawsuit I know, deal. I know. Now it would. Yeah. And if the song's a big enough deal, then they go to court. If it's just like some obscure song off of you know so and so's album that sells very little copy, then nobody cares. You, you know? know, I went looking to see if anyone. Uh, noticed that Wonderwall rips off a song. They were not sued, and neither did I find anybody claiming that they ripped off a song, but they totally did. Um, let me think if I could think of it off the top of my head. Uh, today is going to be the day that they're going to throw it back to you. It sounds just like that uh, song from the 80s. Oh, it's a girl in a video. Oh, I can't think of is it. Is it the shove me in the shallow water <laughs> yeah, yeah just shove me in the shallow water <laughs> i've never thought of that just rhythmically that just you did just remind me of it a little you can tell too that if there was never a bang a gong get it on you know if that song didn't exist cigarettes and alcohol wouldn't exist right and i don't mean like butterfly effect i mean literally that it just leaped out of noel's head because he'd known that song his whole life. And that's, that's a, to me, a direct connection. Here's an interesting fact. 21% uh, of all Oasis songs use the word shine. 21%? One in five. Where'd you get that stat? I know you didn't. I know you didn't run the numbers. Yourself. Put it this way: definitely, maybe. I think half half use the word "shine." Damon Albert, Albarn c conducted a. Uh, a <laughs> yeah. It did say funded by uh, Blur. No, I I did not check out all their songs because, as you mentioned, I tapped out at be here now and said i'm done with oasis so, <laughs> and i refuse to listen i'll go back and listen to that song you mentioned but i refuse to listen to anything else but on the first two albums it's like 50 percent use the word not just shine but also sun he cannot get away from sun and shine that's because it's all cloudy over in england so here are some of the other things noel likes to do he loves his boxes as well as his ballad structures if you look at any oasis song at least on the first two albums he likes to move around the fretboard which makes him very burt Bacharach. 
lake. And I did not know this before researching, but Burt Bacharach, his picture is on the definitely maybe cover. Yeah, it is. I never knew until researching this episode that he was influenced, but it it makes total sense because as I kind of went back and looked, he's all over. And if Burt Bacharach is known for anything, he just uses... He's like a sophisticated chef. He's going to use every single chord. He's going to use every kind of bar phrasing. It's going to be ultra intellectualized kind of composition. That doesn't mean it makes it a good song. And ultimately, I think Burt Bacharach has maybe five songs I like. But I've listened to enough to know that even though it's not my cup of tea, it's still sophisticated. Now, Noel, he tries to take Burt Bacharach and kind of refine him a little bit. And some of the ways he's going to do that is he uses a lot of flat sevenths, which if you're in the key of E, you're, you're using D. Oh yeah. So like we talked about in the last episode, uh, D is, a, you know, kind of part of a kind of a part of E, they kind of share it. And it's kind of that seventh note in the E kind of bluesy. Well, to that end, Burt Bacharach doesn't use it a lot, but Noel uses it a ton because that's essentially the Rolling Stone chord. It, it's the way to get into using the circle of fifths. Noel loves circle of fifths, which is just moving up or down five semitones from a G to a C, from an A to a D, from a D to a G. Noel does it on like every single song. He also uses lots of sevenths, lots of six, lots of major sevenths, lots of sus fours. But again, sometimes I don't, I think it's to the detriment of the song that he's trying to throw that stuff in there. He likes to use lots of flat six. So if you're on an A minor root note, you'd be changing to an F. That's your flat sixth. He also likes to use the transition. So if you're in the key of E and you're on a D to go to a B which is basically the flat seventh to a five. Yeah. He uses that transition probably four times on definitely maybe different songs. Really? Now, wait, let me ask you. Yeah. So is this stuff you're talking about with the chords, what is the reason he fell into your top 10 of all time? Is it this stuff? It's because he's a sophisticated chef that he can use every single chord. He can use one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, and he can use them in interesting ways that actually work. Like it feels natural. Yeah. The second reason is because ultimately the, the songs are good. Just because you can use every single chord across your album and kind of come up with familiar patterns and yet put a little twist on it, that's a starting point. But the songs still got to be good. They got to have good hooks. And I think Noel's got great hooks. Yeah, he does. I mean, and what we were talking about earlier, where he's kind of had the track record of ripping off a few songs. In some ways, that's understandable and forgivable if you're going to be that melodic of a songwriter. Because mm-hmm. you're going to have tunes pop into your head and you're like, you yeah, know, ah, I like this. Why do I? I don't know. Because this is the kind of songwriter I am, this kind of melody I like. Oh, I didn't realize it was a Coca Cola commercial until after I'd written it. Oh, well. <laughs> yeah, I still like the tune. Rather than if you approach songwriting from a little bit more of a lyrics first mentality. As I've mentioned in a previous episode, some people get music architecture, music very instinctively. And if you are one of those people, and I'm speaking from experience here, I just have it. And even if I hear someone talking, I can hear the notes. I can hear the notes in their voice. If you got good memory retention, you're going to retain every single pattern. And inevitably, that pattern's going to come up when you got a guitar in your hand. And you think it's coming from nowhere, but it's it's coming from your memory bank. And what you were saying about Noel being sort of like king of hooks, uh, very hooky, part of that too is is not just the melodies, but knowing where the hook of the song comes in, like the title to the end of the verse or versorus or whatever of 
even like I'm feeling supersonic right then to have a, a big moment of a lyric of that defines the song in that particular phrase at that particular moment. Right. That's just like a gut instinct of, ooh, that's a really cool place to have the central theme of the song. Right. It goes back to the immediacy thing, which we will get into eventually in this episode where I take you on the history of how the refrain developed into a chorus or evolved into a chorus. Uh, let me actually talk about some of the, the songs in the first album, definitely, maybe. Married with Children, which is like the last song, and it's basically a demo. That was very novel for the era. Mm-hmm. I remember when I heard the album, I did not get it. I did not get the album until the very last song when Married with Children comes on. And I thought, oh, wow, this is cool. Because I'd already had a band, you know, Homespun, and we were making demos. And I never heard, you know, this is before Beatles Anthology came out. I had never heard a professionally released guitar demo. And it worked. It worked very well. And when I heard that last song, it just made the whole album click for me. And I realized that they were also trying to borrow you know, from the Beatles at that point too, because without all the distortion, the song sounded like it could have been on Rubber Soul. Now here's Oasis ripping off themselves. She's Electric from the second album, Morning Glory, is basically ripping off Dixie's Diner. Yeah. It's like the same chords. You know, I'm sure he's trying to do it. And of course, She's Electric's also ripping off Beatles uh, a little bit with with a little help from my friends. Yeah. And certain places. Yeah, um, You know, it's funny to this day, and I know you just said Dixie's Diner, yeah. I'm not sure to this day if it's Digsy's Diner or Digsy's Digsy's Dinner. <laughs> uh, when the album came out and I was all into Oasis, I probably would have thought 100% it was Diner. But Dinner spelled with two N's. <laughs> Let me I think we just solved it. This might be like one of those burn stain bears thing. Hold on. Let me give a quick Google because I, I swear it blew my mind. It was one of those uh, Dinner, two N's. Is it really? It really is. It was one of those things I didn't notice it till I'm like 15 years after the album came out. I said, and even the way uh, Noel would say it, like I heard him in an interview talking about Diggsy's dinner, and I thought it was just a diner in Man, uh, you know, Manchester speak. Diggsy's dinner, and it's no, it's, it's dinner. Berenstein Bear strikes again, man. It's two ends. It's, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I swear, when I originally heard the song, it was Diner, but whatever. Yeah. So a couple of things I want to mention. Again, this is just some of what Noel was able to accomplish. He did accomplish a two-bar pre-chorus with the Hello, where it goes, We live in the shadows, and we had the chance of threw it away, and it's never going to be the same. So it's never going to be the same. That's the chorus, but we live in the shadows. We had our chance and threw it away two bar pre-chorus. That's the least selfish Noel was in his entire career right there. Say again, that part is the least selfish, least selfish because normally they are usually minimum four bar, if not minimum eight bar, let alone having a two bar phrase. Yeah. And it's a good part too. One thing I'll always say is that Oasis was just a studio band pretending to be a stage band oh <laughs> that's unfair with their wooden presence that's one no. but two no they just their music is compression laden compression is basically faking it in other words if you record somebody like Mick Jagger, you don't need any compression his voice is strong but if if you were to record my voice it would sound weak you would have to add compression to get it up to Jagger levels. Yeah, but but Liam, a lot of times when he didn't 
blow out his voice because he didn't take care of it or whatever. But he, a lot of times he sounded pretty good, really good live. The vocals are the one thing that are stage ready. Oh, well, you, you brought up the vocals. I'm saying like e- even the reason they got signed and the reason they had to re like we were talking about earlier redo the album with the compression was because they got signed because of their stage presence and their swagger and, and they and their songs. Yeah, but it did start in the club. You know what I mean? And then. They were the ones that, as you said earlier, sold out how many nights in a row right. at uh, Nebworth or whatever it was called. And uh, I'm not saying they weren't successful at being a stage band. I'm saying that they weren't good. They were definitely on the on the lean side of musicianship. Oh, <laughs> right. Not rehearsed at all. Almost every band is better overall musicians i mean they got the second drummer which was good and then it got better and they had more production and more intricate uh guitar parts and bass bass lines and everything else but no i mean the reason they were so successful live was because they just had such anthemic songs that you could just sort of like even uh cigarettes and alcohol it has that stomp to it sure like if you go watch them on the stage i'm not talking Mm -hmm. about just their wooden performance to look at them to also hear it, it's very flat-footed. There's nothing exciting. I'm not saying it's not loud. It's very loud. But there's no improvisation in their performance. No, definitely not. It's very boring in that regard. Their studio faking it. I feel like, I feel like we're, we're sort of talking about the same thing, but different aspects of the same thing. I, I know what you mean. I mean, they were the most opposite thing of a jam band, maybe of all time. Right? <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, you're right about that. Um, but because it was once again supposed to be one hundred percent about the songs, mm-hmm. I remember like somebody telling me that they read like a quote from the drummer from Metallica, Lars, and Lars was a huge Oasis fan, which I was like, wow, yeah. And Lars was just like the energy you can imagine him with like his hair like flicking it back on the energy coming through the stage was like amazing and it was like oh and they're just standing there and it was the same kind of phenomenon when the strokes hit like you said like the strokes it was like i think it was bands like oasis were blown away by the strokes because it's like there's something about that i think you might be talking about presence now they might have presence that doesn't translate through video Mm -hmm. maybe and, and you know what i'll grant that because when we saw them live in chicago 2000 Four, I guess it was. Mm-hmm. That was the only time I ever saw them live. It, it was long past their heyday, and I only went because I got a free ticket out of it. Mm-hmm. And I was at the very, like, very top of the stadium, <laughs> looking down. Was I with you? Uh, we were at the. We were there together, but we were yeah. our tickets were not together, so we were okay. someplace else. But I remember when Liam came on the stage, and it wasn't the rest of the band. It was not Noel. It wasn't Bonehead. It wasn't the drummer. It was when Liam came on stage that I thought, wow, that's the, that's the thing. Like, that's the it factor. It wasn't just how he was dressed. It was his presence, charisma, and he wasn't doing anything. Just standing there. I think he wore shorts, though. That's a big no-no in my book. Or maybe somebody said once, which maybe this makes more sense, like, the only one ever allowed to wear shorts on stage is Liam Gallagher. Like he can actually do it. <laughs> or ACDC. Uh, oh yeah, ACDC. They're really just a Noel songwriting clinic band. That's what they were. Mm. Uh, well, no, that, that's unfair to Liam because Liam, to me, like part of the reason, like when I was listen, re-listening to Cigarettes and Alcohol and I go, man, like it, 
all good things that happen in music are like uh, unexpected. Like nobody was asking for someone to come along with this thick guitar sound. <laughs> wall of sound part two. Wall of sound and with these this bluesy riff and then sing it's so shiny. <laughs> I mean, nobody thought that up until it happened, right. you know, and goes, oh, I guess now, yeah, we do need that. We do want to like all quit our jobs. And, right. but I think that's a good thing. I think it's like, wow, you, you hit on something here. The right combinations lined up. We got lucky. I mean, it goes without saying that as great of a songwriter as Noel is, he just couldn't have broken through without those vocals. Right. Uh, one other thing I'll mention before I finally get into the history of the refrain into the chorus. Um, I got to give no credit here because I've definitely painted him into a well-deserved corner of being extremely conventional when it comes to bar phrasing. But in Hey Now, it starts out with a very unconventional 5 by 11 chorus. Feel no shame. Because time's no change. That's 5 16th, 11 16. If you, if you add them together, it actually just equals 16, a 16 measure. But it's still interesting that he cuts it at five, which it's a very difficult. The, the drummer's doing a, a good job at making that phrasing work. But that's very Beatles esque. And it's one of the only times that Oasis ever experimented. Do you have a, um, do you have a favorite Oasis song? Yeah. Well, cigarettes and alcohol. Is my number one, mostly what mm-hmm. we discussed in the last episode, which is it's one of the only coherent linear songs that he has, meaning he's he actually has something to say. It's not supersonic. It's not live forever, which these are kind of ethereal concepts. It's a very grounded, rooted song. And I'm a working man. Yeah. Cigarettes and alcohol helps me to get by. In fact, Noel ha- said he only wrote three songs. And after that, he was just repeating himself. Cigarettes and alcohol live forever. And I forget the third one. Mm-hmm. His point was that don't look back in anger. That's not something he had to say. That That's him putting some kind of Beatles-esque lyrics to a chord progression, trying to make a hit that sounds <laughs> you know, accessible for American audiences. I wonder what the third would have been. Neither of those is a uh, love song. So he probably would have had a love song angle. He's not known for that, but I mean, he did have some. So let's move into the big refrain evolution into a chorus i put so much time into this because i just loved it as soon as i stumbled upon the idea that there once were no choruses like there are choruses today i wanted to find the point at which it switched over and it was a you know let's just say 10 song transition over the course of four years from 60 to 64 one of the best examples of what most 50s music sounded like although it's still an advanced example of a chorus is Hello, Mary Lou. I say hello, Mary Lou. Ricky Nelson, 1960. It's got a very distinct chorus. The verse is still very similar. It's still just moving root note to four, root note to four, and then up to five, and then back to root note. The melody is quite a bit different, the the actual vocal melody, but the chords are still similar. So I can't call it a true chorus distinction. And here are the criteria I'm going to use. So in order to call it a chorus, or to make a distinction between a verse and a chorus, I got to see that the tagline of the song or like the title of the song is used in the chorus. So most of the time you're going to see the tag used in a versorus. Therefore it's tough to say that the bridge is a chorus if they're not actually using the, the tagline such as PS. I love you, which came out in 1962 Beatles PS. I love you is only in the versorus. 
Yeah. When it goes into the, as I write this letter, send my love to you. Remember that I'll always be in love with you. As best I can tell, that's a middle eight. But they repeat it three times and they open the song with it. So they're not using it like a middle eight. Ooh, that's cool. I didn't think about them opening with it. Yeah. yeah. But they don't use P.S. I love you in it. So it can't be a chorus. You know, what's the polar opposite of that is, uh, hey, Jude. Because it's not the tagline of the Versaurus, it's the first line of the Versaurus, or the first words. I hesitate to call what we would probably call the chorus, it's just a bridge. Oh yeah, oh, I've always thought of that as a bridge. So that's one criteria, to use the tag in the chorus. Oh, I'm sorry, real quick. Yep. I just thought of this though, yesterday is the exact same structure. First lyric, and then there's a, and then there's a bridge. All right, go on. Yeah, and it ends with yesterday too. Oh, I believe in yesterday. Oh, ooh, a bookend. <laughs> okay, now the verse has to be modular. What I found often is that 50 songs and early 60 songs, you can't do back-to-back verses. The verse always leads into the chorus or the refrain. And if that's the case, then it's a refrain. It's not a chorus. Mm. And I'll show you the song. I'm going to save it to the last. The first song to do this meets all these criteria. Another big one is that the chorus has to change from the root note. Now, I'm willing to allow it to change to a sister chord, like G to an E minor. I'm somewhat willing to allow it to do a key change, although anytime you key change, it feels like you're cheating a little bit. So I'd rather have you change chord within the key, not do an actual key change. The other thing is the bar phrasing. So a lot of verse refrains are 12 bars in the 50s and maybe eight bars. But a true chorus is four bars. Now, choruses can be all shapes and sizes, from two to 16 or even 32 bars, as you'll as we'll see in some of these examples. But still, a four-bar chorus or an eight-bar chorus would be the sweet spot. Very conventional, very accessible to the average listener. Okay, so these are some of the, the criteria. Let's go through them. So again, Hello, Mary Lou, that failed the root note test. It stays on the same root note and the verse and the chorus. It also doesn't have a repeatable verse. The verse always leads into the chorus, so you can't play two verses in a row. 1961, Burt Bacharach. He comes up with Wishing, Hoping, which is a great song and actually includes the first minor to major. So I had said before that the first one I could find was Love and Spoonful. It's actually wishing, hoping. So if you're thinking about what true love is, all you got to do is hoping and wishing and praying and da, da, whatever it is. <laughs> but in any case, that little transition, and, and keep in mind, Burt Bacharach is Burt Bacharach in this entire song. I mean, this thing has like a three-leg chorus, or let's call it a verse refrain, where it's seven bars is the first leg. Second leg is four bars. Third leg is six bars. So it's seven, four, six. And then when it gets into like its middle eight or bridge, it's six bars with a second leg that's three bars. So it's all over the place. In fact, we'll end up doing something on that song because that's the most, that's the first and most complicated song to ever come out of rock and roll. And it was Burt Bacharach, 1961. Okay. He's a rebel, 1961. This is where uh, Phil Spector starts to get involved. He's a rebel and he never ever does what he should or whatever it is. Okay. So this does a few kind of core sequence, cool stuff, but ultimately talking about whether it's a verse or a chorus, it's a 14 bar chorus. Again, that's just too long. It violates the eight bar max principle to call it a true chorus. The first song that's got a really distinguishable chorus is 1961's Runaway by Del Shannon. It's a 24 bar extended chorus. I'm a walking in the rain. Tears are falling and I feel a pain. 
Oh, yeah. Wishing you were here by me to end this misery. And I wonder, I wonder why she ran away. And I wonder where she will stay, eh? my little runaway. That's a 24 bar chorus. Mm. So this is 1961. People are beginning to figure out, hey, <laughs> these verse refrains, we could expand on this. And they're kind of going to the extreme 24 bar measures. You don't see any chorus that's 24 bars today. No. So, so 1961, they broke the mold, and <laughs> it might be the longest chorus ever. But again, it's got a problem. It plays two verses, goes to the chorus, and never comes back for, to another verse. It just plays a solo over the verse and then heads back into the chorus. So they realize the chorus is so freaking long, we can't get a third verse into the song. So it goes verse, verse, chorus, chorus, end hmm. with an instrumental in between the two choruses. Four Seasons, 1962. By the way, I just watched this movie. Uh, never saw it. The Jersey Boys. I was impressed. Very good. Clint Eastwood did the stage version for a film, and they got a good story. First of all, they got a, a great songwriter in there. Uh, what's his name? Bob Guadio. I, I was glad to see that in the film, they play him up. In the story, they play him up to be a genius. And he really is, because he was helping to invent choruses. Here's ultimately what I think happened. As we transitioned out of the 50s with so many verse refrains, some of these examples that I just showed you where you had these extended, huge choruses, 18, 20, 24-bar choruses, in the middle, you had Four Seasons, who was doing eight-bar verses with eight-bar bridges. And the bridge was as catchy as the verse to where it almost sounded like a chorus. And mm -hmm. they started to blur the lines that you could have two really catchy parts. Whereas before, in the early days of rock, it was just one catchy part. And if you were lucky, they gave you a little middle eight or maybe a bridge. If you think of a song like, uh, Walk like a man, talk na na na, talk da da na my son. Walk like a man, my son. Okay, so like that's the chorus. And then you get the, the melody. Do yeah. So they're giving you a lot for your money. Um, and then, of course, it goes into, Why I got the size? I cut me down to size. Da, 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 lies with your friends. It's like a totally different song. Well, it doesn't seem like it should have been such a revelation. I, I, I believe you and all, but it doesn't seem like, oh, maybe we should make more than one part of the song <laughs> good. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. right. And that's where Beatles sure. come along. Because Beatles, and we've all heard the stories, but when you really begin to see through the lens that the verse refrain had a, a good seven years before the Beatles got to start going, hey, we can do better. Mm -hmm. PSI Love You, right out of the gate, just breaks tons of rules, not just with the chord structure, as I've uh, talked about before, where it, it basically jumps up uh, – a B flat to an E, something of that nature, which shouldn't be possible and still sound conventional, yet they do it. They're breaking all the bar phrasing rules. They're repeating the middle eight three times. That's why I've always called them composers as opposed to just right. songwriters, but correct. that apparently is uh, not obvious to everybody. Right. Well, people say, oh, I love Beatles. There's just something about them. It's like, there's not something about them. It's very smart music and it's very, it's very immediate. Beatles never make you wait. The thing that makes that used to piss me off the most would be, oh, I like some of their uh, their later stuff, like the uh, you know the Sergeant Pepper and stuff. <laughs> but uh, the early stuff was a little too simple. <laughs> and stupid. 
Is that my dad? <laughs> That's your dad. <laughs> it's, it's, but it's anybody. I've heard other people say it's anybody that doesn't, you know, no, literally has never picked up a guitar, played a chord, tried to write a song. Right. And they just hear harmonies and catchiness and think it's simple and dumb. Right. And you go, well, there's a reason not everybody can do this. Otherwise, people will just be writing catchy, dumb, sing-along songs all day. That's the problem we have because that's what we have today. We don't have composers anymore. We have posers. We don't have composers. (laughs) (laughs) Which is also why I can't lead the songwriting revival movement because I'm just – if I see somebody who's a poser, I'll call them out. (laughs) It's like, look, know your history. Get to know the greats. And then start writing some good songs. Unless you get it natively, and if you do, great, then I don't have a problem with it. But if you're going to come to me with GCD, GCD E minor, maybe that's a great song. But chances are, if you're writing very conventional chord structure, you're probably not breaking new ground. You have to find some way to put your signature on it, and you got to study the greats. There's a lot of guys in Nashville doing the very simple chord progressions. Uh huh. You can get away with it. And writing fantastic songs. You know, I've been noticing a lot recently is just how well the, we're a little off topic now, but how just starting your song, not on the one chord yeah, or the sixth chord. I see it a lot in, uh, in a lot of the, the country stuff. You know what? I discovered the first song in my verse to chorus research. I discovered the first song that does it. Okay. The first song that does not start on the root note. And it's You're My Soul and My Heart's Inspiration by the Righteous Brothers. Girl, how can I get through this? So it's an A minor to B minor to C to B minor. So it's got this weird meandering verse, A minor, B minor, C, B minor. It's all in G. When it gets to the chorus, it hits G. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Be My Baby, 1963. Again, Phil Spector. Be my, be my, be my little baby. So it's got some very distinct verse, pre-chorus, chorus parts, and it's got some decent chords in there too. But again, the chorus is the same as the verse in terms of the root note. And it also has a problem with uh, the, the verses are not modular. In other words, you can't repeat them. The verse always leads into the pre-chorus. It's my party and I'll cry if I want to. This actually has some pretty cool chords and just quick uh, deviation. It's the first one to do a major to a minor. I originally gave it to John Lennon with in, in my life. And then I found another song recently that did it. But this one even predates that. So It's My Party comes out in 1963. The chorus on the chords are A, A augmented, D, D minor, back to A. It's my party and A augmented, D, D minor. The the interesting thing here is that Quincy Jones actually produced this record. I never knew that he was this early in rock and roll. But yeah, he's there, 1963, right as Motown's coming up too. You got to watch that uh, Quincy Jones documentary on Netflix. I think his uh, watch it daughter Rashida maybe directed it or something. Nice. I didn't realize that actress was his daughter. It's awesome because he was dude can like uh, notate. You know, he's he's a proper composer. Right. He's, uh, he went to school for composition. Yeah, actually, he he was friends with Clint Eastwood. Who was also in the music school with him. I didn't know that. Yeah, he was a jazz. See, in the 50s, jazz musicians were probably the most musically inclined, even more so than, you know, symphony classical music. Because jazz, you had to become familiar with all kinds of notes, stuff that violated rules left and right in music theory. So he climbs into the uh, cockpit 
and immediately kind of gets his hands on this song. And I'm sure he had something to do with making that an A augmented and a D to a D minor to, to give it edge. Mm, yeah. But we've now arrived, friends, to the song that finally did everything that a verse and a chorus, the way that you kind of bifurcate between those, it did it. And it was 1963, She Loves You by the Beatles. <laughs> okay. And here's what it did it does a verse pre chorus, then a verse pre chorus demonstrating that it is modular. So she said she loves you, and you know that can't be bad. She said she loves you, and you know you should be glad. You said she's on to you, or whatever it is. It goes back to the verse there. That's the first time in music history. That you get from a verse to a pre-chorus, head back to the verse before you hit the chorus. Mm, are you sure? <laughs> I listen to every single song. <laughs> the verse always leads into the chorus. So the second thing is, is that they got the tagline squarely in the chorus. Now, they do a little blending because they do also have the tag in the verse. But the chorus is so in your face with She Loves You over and over that it certainly satisfies the criteria of the tag is squarely located in the chorus. It changes the chord because the chorus is on a minor. The Beatles were always very novel in how they used minors for choruses, whereas everybody else might use majors for choruses and minors for verse. And it has a very linear structure, eight bar verse, eight bar pre-chorus, eight bar chorus. Here's where I think it gets really interesting. She Loves You is the first song that is very distinctly verse chorus. However, that broke them in UK. That broke Beatlemania wide open. It did not break them in America. It was the song that they wrote immediately after that. Let me guess now. Yeah, I know. Which was, I want to hold your hand. Well, yeah, they actually had th three major singles not hit America. Right. From Me To You was one of them. Please Please Me From Me To You and uh, She Loves You. You would have thought that She Loves You would have done it. It would have. Keep in mind, She Loves You came out before I Want to Hold Your Hand. But after I Want to Hold Your Hand went to number yeah. one, She Loves You took it out of number one. Okay, well, that makes sense. It just wasn't getting played yet. It was just a matter of exposure. But here's the thing. So people have oftentimes said, when you heard I Want to Hold Your Hand come on the radio, it was magic. Right. What they're actually talking about is no one had heard a verse chorus that distinctly before. It wasn't Oh, it was just something about it. No, it wasn't. Oh, it was just something about it. No, it was just something about it. No, it was just something about it. No, it was just something about it. I think you might be blowing my mind a little bit. It's a first chorus. No one had heard it. It was like a technological revelation. I think you might be blowing my mind a little bit. Yeah, wait for it. So it's a four bar chorus, eight bar verse. And when they get to the chorus, they change the note because the verse is G, D, E minor, B. And then it repeats, yeah. and then it hits the chorus, which is C, D, G, E minor. Now, I, granted, they're only going up to the four chord, but they're not doing it in a blues format. It's not G, C, G, C, G, C, D, and then they hit C. This was G, D, E minor, B, which is a pretty novel pattern for its day already mm -hmm. to have that B in there. But the plane up from a B to a C, yeah. it has a very distinct feel, and it's a very conventional four-bar phrase. America had not heard anything like that up to that point. Yeah, that makes sense. If you uh, read some background stories on I Want to Hold Your Hand, Lennon and McCartney, apparently, when they were kind of writing eye to eye in the basement of Jane Asher's home, 
when they came up with that song, they were they were happy with She Loves You. If you recall some of the stories there, I think Lennon took it to his grandpa and was very proud of it. Like you don't hear a lot of stories about how proud Lennon was, but he was he was proud with She Loves You. And I think it's because they understood that they had written the verse chorus. Right. I think that they realized, hey, we're onto something here that's extremely powerful, like a combination. Just like the first time someone discovered GCD, mm-hmm. well, the first time verse, pre-chorus, chorus was developed was She Loves You, and Lennon was proud of it. Well, when they wrote I Want to Hold Your Hand not too long after, they were onto the chords G, D, and E minor, which were conventional. And when Paul hit the B chord, Lennon apparently jumped out of his skin and was like, hold on, well, what's that chord? That's the chord. That gets us to the the next level because i think he instinctively and i think paul mccartney also realized it too that as soon as they hit that and with the melody that they had already come up with it was already lending itself to planing up to a c right that's difficult to do conventionally to go up one semitone and kind of transition to your chorus a couple other notable mentions or mentionable notables honorable mentions (laughs) (laughs) beach boys their minds were blown with I Want to Hold Your Hand, Brian Wilson immediately set out to write his answer. This lends credibility to my theory because Beach Boys were not writing verse chorus up until this point. Don't Worry Baby, their next release was a distinct verse chorus and the root note changes. In fact, he starts out in the verse in the key of E and he gets up to the key of F sharp for the chorus. So he went out of his way to, to try to change the root note for one. And two... Uh, it's a very distinct, different chord pattern, and "Don't Worry, Baby" is an obvious tag only used in the chorus, not in the verse. "Baby, I Need Your Lovin'" that also came out in 1964, right after "I Want to Hold Your Hand" by the Four Tops by Holland Dozier Holland. They also then write a very distinct verse chorus. The point I'm making here is an avalanche of distinct verse chorus songs follow in the three, four months after "I Want to Hold Your Hand." Hmm. Beatles had basically opened Pandora's box. Yeah, I never really thought about it because for me, music kind of started with the Beatles. Um, It's sort of like I don't watch too many old movies and the Elvis thing, it's whatever. So I never really thought about the fact that there's such a obvious bifurcation, if you like that word, eh? Uh, between like verse and choruses because I've just grown up in a post-verse chorus world. Mm. So it's like a fish not noticing the water. Right. And to bring it full circle, you know, verse refrains are still used because cigarettes and alcohol is a verse refrain. And I still love it. I still love that original song structure um, that obviously we talked about the Beatles used a lot too, but I never thought about uh, she loves you or I want to hold your hand as kind of having that that big of an impact uh right structurally structurally yeah i I always just thought of it as kind of melodically and uh quarterly and obviously there's just the image of the beatles and everything else but structurally it was all new too well let me just talk real quick we'll wrap this up because we're going to be at around an hour oh this would be a long one but uh so get it on that borrows a lot from honky-tonk women uh specifically with how they use the chorus uh, quarter notes on the snare drum and then pull it back to just on the offbeat for the verse. Uh, it, it's also a trick that uh, Rolling Stones invented with Let's Spend the Night Together. They do the same thing. Uh, Come Together is a two-bar chorus. I think that they kind of ripped off Come Together's chorus a little bit with kind of borrowing from the, the ultra lean two-bar phrase. 
influences on the Oasis, Beatles, Stone Roses, T-Rex, Rolling Stones, Burt Bacharach, even the Four Seasons with Bob Guadio. I think that a lot of kind of pop ballad using all the different chords obviously influenced Noel Gallagher downstream from Oasis, Strokes, and really the last rock movement, which I'll just call like the indie wave, which we're still in. It's just now everybody is king of their own castle. They can release on whatever distribution platform they want to, Spotify or YouTube. And there's really no more MTV as it used to exist. There's really no more radio as it used to exist, despite the fact that it's still viewed somewhat as a distribution method. It just doesn't own the, the market like it used to. And let's talk about the next episode. Ah. You're going to like this one. On the heels of Oasis, which was one of the bands that mainly influenced us, the second one was Weezer. Mm. We, we're going to do a Weezer versus Buddy Holly episode, specifically <laughs> the songs Every Day by Buddy Holly versus Buddy Holly, the song by mm-hmm. Weezer. I thought you were going to throw me a curveball there and say, <laughs> and we're going to do Say It Ain't So. <laughs> no, I, I thought about going there and then I just, I, I went and listened to Buddy Holly, the song by Weezer. Yeah. And I thought, not only is this one of their best songs, but from what I re- recall, that song was really accessible. It's a GCD song w- with s- some flavors here and there. But ultimately, that video and that song really broke through the mainstream. Uh, Weezer was not a mainstream band, but that song did break onto the mainstream chart. So I figured that's the one we should do, not Say It Ain't So, which did not break through. We- Weezer was a mainstream band. They were eventually, by their third album, they actually got mainstream. No, no. They weren't charting, not on the U.S. charts. You can give me the stats next week or whatever, but I guess everyone I knew, I thought Weezer was one of the biggest bands uh, during the Blue Album, but they took a little bit of dip on their greatest masterpiece, Pinkerton, but I don't know why. Well, we shall discuss the fruits of that conversation in a month. And uh, again, to our listeners, leave us some comments. Let us know what you think about the show. Let us know if we're blowing your mind here with that that little, I want to hold your hand, first verse chorus that rocked America's minds. And uh, most likely we'll be talking about the Beatles again sometimes. <laughs> probably. <laughs> like probably. Every, every episode. <laughs> it comes back full circle to the Beatles. Every episode. All right. Well. Good to see everybody, and uh, good to see you, Ryan. We'll talk in a month.